0: Welcome
2: to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. Um, Today, our guests are Tim Walker and Lucian Morris, and we will be discussing their book, The Handbook of Banking Technology by uh, John Wiley. Um, Lucian and Tim worked together for over a decade using their complementary skills and experience on the application of technology in the banking industry. Lucien has been consulting, presenting, and writing on technology and retail related topics for more than 15 years and is a specialist in the building of man- and management of technology solutions and services in financial services organizations. As a director of Deloitte, Lucien worked with many UK and European top tier retail banks and is best known for his role as the Chief Information Officer during the build and launch of Metro Bank, for which Deloitte won a prestigious Management Consulting Association Award. After spending more than a decade as a consultant at Deloitte, Lucien then worked and, on other startup banks and led the build and launch of UK-based ba- fintech LQID. He enjoys presenting on banking-related topics and writes a regular blog on LinkedIn where he comments on developments in the UK retail banking industry, particularly the current account market. Lucien is currently the chief information officer at the Mortgage Advice Bureau in the UK. He lives in Bedfordshire and with his wife and two children. Tim is an expert on the use and implementation of technology in banking and payment organizations. After setting up one of the UK's first websites as a student in the early 1990s, he started his professional career at Logica, ultimately leading the development of a customer relationship management platform that was implemented in various financial services call centers. He then moved to Deloitte, where he was uh, consulted to a wide range of banks and payment organizations, including a role as a a lead solution architect for a new pan-European mass affluent online bank. And leading the system integration of a new card payment authorization platform for a global payment scheme. After becoming partnered at Deloitte, Tim set up and became the global leader of its core banking practice, providing advice to a wide range of banking institutions for a small, single branch banks to the largest international banking groups, as well as writing articles, presenting at conferences, and undertaking pre acquisition due diligence reviews for technology and operations of various banking and payment organizations. During his times at Deloitte, he worked across Europe, in the USA, and in the Middle East. Since leaving Deloitte, Tim has undertaken various roles, including leading a large program to implement a new finance platform for an international bank, and has uh, been a non-executive director for a startup bank in the UK. He is currently heavily involved in digital healthcare technology. He lives in the Y Valley and is with his wife and two children. Lucian and Tim, again, thank you for joining us at New Books Network.
0: Thank you. Thanks for the introduction,
2: Bernardo. Well, I think we have um, kind of covered uh, our first question, which is usually to give us uh, a little bit of your background. Um, However, uh, I would like to um, hear from you what led you to be interested in IT, and particularly IT in banking.
1: If I, if I kind of pick that up first, I think um, you know, I, I joined Deloitte in about uh, 2007 um, but uh, I was fortunate enough when I came back from holiday in uh, August the following year to, to be asked to, to go along and, and support the, the build of Metrobeck. Um and actually I walked into what could only be described as, a, as an open office with about a dozen people sat around with this crazy idea that they are going to launch a bank in the UK that, that process was uh, was incredibly exciting. Um, obviously the launch in the UK was was covered by uh, a lot of the press. Uh, uh, and you know from my perspective it, it was actually one, one of the things that, that really kind of drove me forward over the next few years, that interest in, in banking, in new entrants startups, and particularly in how technology can change the way that we we engage with our, our banking and financial services.
0: Yeah, and I think from my perspective there was no there was no grand plan to sort of work in banking technology. I, I knew I wanted to work uh with technology, um, from being a, a university student and, and um in fact probably even prior to that, something I enjoyed. Um for me there were there were two standard roles which you'd already mentioned, Bernardo, uh in, in your introduction, um that, I think really set a direction for um, my career and and also you know interest and where where I'd spend a lot of time working. And the first was helping set up a new greenfield digital bank in the in the dot com era uh, and being a solution architect and ultimately the the lead solution architect for that and, and and working out how it all needed to fit together, you know from front office all the way to the back office uh, and integrating with schemes and so on. And then the other one. Um, was helping build a new authorization platform for a a global card payment scheme, um, which introduced me to a world that I think everyone, well, the vast majority of people just use cards to make payments, but have no um, understanding of actually what what is happening behind the scenes and and how how the messaging works and so on. And I I had no real insight. When I started in that role, either, and and there was really nowhere I could go, um, other than to very technical card scheme specification manuals that are given to um, card issuers and and acquirers by the schemes. There was nowhere I could go to sort of find out how a card scheme worked. There was just a, a paucity of publicly available documentation um so anyway so so and they were they were great projects to work on i had a fantastic time um you know it was some really challenging stuff at work but also um in both cases i was working overseas and and getting the you know the most out of working in a you know living in a different country and experiencing different cultures and things like that and um, it's that sort of project that i've always wanted to do ever since sort of big all-encompassing projects that really you know, exercise um, both your, you know, the the minds of the people working on them, but also the, um, you know, the teams working together.
2: Thank you. Um, And I think that you've um, highlighted or started to point in your response um, perhaps what was your motivation for the book, at least how how you tell it in direct direction and is, um, you know, trying to find something that, that would help others. But really, how is it that you two started to talk about uh, coming together and writing this, this book.
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, obviously, I, I, after Metro Bank, I went back to Deloitte and, and, and worked on a variety of, of, of other projects with different businesses. And as a consultant, you know, there are times when you, when you get to do exactly what it is that you wanted to do in terms of project-wise, and other times where you have to compromise. And so where I came at this from, actually, was, was part altruistic and, and, and part selfish. So I'll talk about the selfish part first. For me, the selfish part was, you know, I was actually concerned. I built up this volume of knowledge through building Metro Bank. I mean, we, we built everything. So all the integrations with, with various different third parties for cards and for payments and, and for fraud and everything else. We built everything. Uh, and my concern was that through this sort of mix of projects that, that I, I, I was working on, there were times when, you know, I was, I was kind of looking at it and thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm losing some of that knowledge. So I wanted to codify what I had learned. But the flip side of that, of course, is exactly what Tim was saying. You know, you have to kind of, you know, when you go back to about 2015, I think it is, when when the genesis of this idea came out, the, the UK banking scene at that time was, was there was massive change going on. There were lots of new entrants entering the market. There still are a, a few, but not quite on the same level. There was a lot of excitement about, about what is going on. And, you know, to Tim's point, you kind of looked out across the market and, and there was just nothing in terms of. Content to support people from attempting to innovate, and you know my view is is you, you can't change something unless you actually understand it. The blue sky thinking can occur, but until you actually understand it, you can't get into the you know in, in, into the nuts and bolts and really make those those changes. So um, you know, as I say, this this idea of writing a book came up. Um, I approached Tim, uh, and, and Tim said to me something along the lines of, "Well, funnily enough, I've always had an idea that I've, I might like to write a book." Um, and
0: that's how it started. Yeah. I of. I think we had we had sort of similar motivations slightly different sort of backgrounds and so on but um for me I think overriding was I, I just felt I had all this knowledge in my head that at one level I sort of I sort of wanted to get out of my head and onto paper um, you know and and there, there's both as you said Lucien there's both a selfish and an altruistic part to that isn't there? Um, you know had no view I, I I think there was one other aspect for me that was pretty important in this um, as as a technologist at heart, the one that really operates in the area between um, the operational side of a business and typically i 'm talking about a bank or a a payments organization here and the technology side so I have a, a deep a deep sort of functional understanding of how of how things work not just from a, a technology perspective but my my roles are typically about how i translate from that functional understanding about what a business wants to do or is it you know or is, is trying to change to do into okay how do, what's the technology required to deliver that um i i so i've done a lot of that sort of, of work and thinking and I, I what became apparent to me is i i came across banking executives in particular who had seemingly no comprehension of the technology that was fundamentally enabling their business. And in fact, I'd say in some cases, some of them were quite proud. They had no comprehension of that and and had no desire to ever get any form of comprehension of it. Others, I think actually, you know, I had conversations with a few people and they basically said, I wish I, I wish I knew more, but there was no way they could find out more other than, you know, finding people to talk to who could educate them a bit. So, so, you know, I, I just felt there was a gap there uh, and, 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 actually banks and payment organizations are fundamentally digital businesses. So if you don't understand the technology as a senior manager or executive in one of those business, I think you are slightly handicapped. Um, you know, so, so again, I think there's, uh, my view is there was a real need to provide some accessible material that that. That sort of person could read and 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 use to educate themselves.
2: Thank you. Yes, I and I um, since you've done a a, a very good uh, job, certainly a thorough job in your first chapter talking about the history of banking. I I, I think it's then fair to to comment that um, uh, there has been this tension uh, between it people and banking people within banking organizations almost from the outset of the first technology or or the first the adoption of the first computers uh, actual digital computers the 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 mechanical instruments were were not uh, posing so much of a challenge but they they posed challenges but in in other directions and and uh, uh, that was uh, solved or or addressed um, through the employment of of, uh, of women, and and that's a different topic to what we want to talk to today. So we we leave it at that. But certainly, you know, this tension between the people that do understand the technology and the people that only want to understand the the banking side has been there, and sometimes it it seems that it gets resolved when you're talking to to managers, and sometimes, as as Tim have mentioned it isn't and 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 still two you know completely separate uh, separate words world um, but before we, we we jump into the into the book one one uh, uh, more question which is what sort of advice would you give to the people that like you are are if, if you don't mind the, the label practitioners um, IT uh, people and and uh, are thinking or could think of of writing uh, a book like this and getting to a similar endeavor
0: yeah and no, it's a it 's a, a good question um, and i think I think we had certain advantages so you know others may not be in this position um, so given you know we'd we, we both had careers in consulting we were we were pretty proficient at writing um, concisely precisely accurately you know all that good stuff in in a way that's understandable as well it's part of the sort of skill set you pick up you know you expect good good consultants to have they've got to be able to write reports and so on about what they find or what a client should do and so on so so from a writing perspective i think we felt we have the skills to write stuff and write it well um i think as well and i you know lucid it's probably over to you about how we we went through the mechanics of finding out a publisher because that's that's really you know that's really your story i think
1: i mean i was i was fairly fortunate in that my my father's an engineer and he's written a number of books um as a consequence of his career um so actually when it came to finding a publisher he was able to introduce us to wiley um and and that i think you know just in the first instance just getting to that position where you're having a proper conversation with somebody without having to break the door down in the first instance is, is a good start i think so that that certainly was a benefit the other thing i would i would say actually just thinking about what, what tim was talking about i mean there's, there's a couple of things that spring to, spring to mind and the first might sound a little bit trite but um, i'll explain it and hopefully it will help it is actually having an understanding significant other um you know one of the things after we published the book uh and you know i think it was the following summer I was out talking to, you know, walking with my wife and, and, and talking about the book and how pleased I was with it. And, and, and she made a relatively simple comment, which, which really kind of landed with me, which was actually, yes, I put all of the effort into the book. But she actually had to pick up the chunks of the housework and chunks of organising things in the background whilst I was feverishly uh, working away. So there was, a, there was a partnership, a real partnership there in, in terms of getting the book done. Uh, And the other partnership, of course, is the partnership between between Tim and I. And, and, you know, when you're working together that closely over what is a protracted period, um, you you need to find a level of understanding. There is also, you know, to an extent, a level of of sort of forgiveness, because you are, when you're writing a book like that with multiple chapters, you are constantly tripping over each other. We have complementary but different skills. Uh, And you have to kind of accept the fact that the other person will Exert where they have more knowledge or more skill. They will exert that on that area, and you have to be dignified and gracious when they do, and accept that they know
0: more. Yeah, I, I agree, Lucian, and, and and I think that I think that bit though really helped us with equality. And again, I I can imagine if you're a single author, it could be a a sort of it could be a much harder battle with the soul, if you like, but with two of us. Actually, there's a level of mutual support that goes on. Um, that, You know, you have to have give and take on this. And, and but, but you know, if, if you need to spend some time not writing and thinking about some stuff, you, you get a degree of assurance that the other person is probably still progressing things as well. Um, I, I think it helps us improve the quality of the book as well because we were we were actually pretty challenging with each other. I mean, I mean to the point that at times, you know, I sort get, of get off a call and feel quite annoyed. With Lucian, Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I'm I'm a complete, and utter, I'm a complete and utter quality freak. Um, So um, you know, and and, uh, Lucian's got a slightly different style, um, but it's perfectly, it's got a very good style, um, much more relaxed than me on some things. Um, And but between us, you know, we really pushed each other on the content, um, and there was quite a lot of questioning both ways about. The veracity of certain statements that you know one of us had written and so on well i'm not sure i really believe that what's the evidence and and that and that just pushed us to really pin things down and and also you know if you dip into the book you'll you'll see it's 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 highly referenced because we were we were actually quite paranoid about um just writing opinion rather than fact um now in a book you, you you can't just in practice you also you can't just have a book which is entirely comprised of third party you know references it doesn't work like that you've got to bring something of your own knowledge to it as well so so that's that's quite a balance so um you know but again i think having two of us it, it, it enable us to keep on track enable us to adopt a consistent sort of level of content and detail between us, because we would keep challenging each other back on that. And and I I, I just think if you're a single author, it's probably going to be a little bit different and and possibly harder.
2: Exactly. But, um, I I mean, and you have quite a wealth of sources that you have used to to support your your story or support your views. I mean, um, here... Uh, for my for my more learned colleagues, uh, you know there is this big camps between whether you can be completely objective or you are part of the of of the phenomena that you are under uh, uh, you know explaining or trying to understand or analyze. And I think that you're much more to the second camp than into the first camp. But you're you're trying to to bring out not only you know second uh, what would we call secondary sources or or published material. Both in terms of journalistic articles and um, the work of of other people, but also you 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 tried to go to some of the original archives, like in the national archives and 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 stuff like 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 that. Uh, but nevertheless, this is this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's to support your your the story that you want to tell. Yeah, we- for sure. Yeah,
0: and 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 yeah, and and to be honest, I think as well. Here's here's another point about. If you are thinking about writing a book so so Lucian talked about how actually for us, it was relatively easy to find a publisher, but what I'd say is we we didn't just go and talk to Wiley we actually before we'd even you know addressed finding a publisher, we'd worked out a view of the contents of the book and the topics we wanted to cover um and you know we were we were quite clear on that and and that was also helpful and 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 i think when it came to formalizing a proposal to wiley you know it was it was relatively quick for us to to do that because we were we were quite clear um there's another point i the book i think represents our knowledge um you know of banking and payments and the technology associated with it It, and and there's, there's probably not a lot missing. There, there are some topics that we didn't, we, we ultimately we didn't cover, or, or or we didn't cover in in any great detail, just because of time and, and, and space and so on. Um, but um, you know, so so it wasn't like we were researching this from a blank sheet of paper. We sort of we sort of knew the content, and for us, a lot a lot of that referencing was was validation and fleshing out of areas that we you know we didn't know fully. Um, And and again, I'd say that helped us improve um, the quality of the content as well. You know, so we we were in a good position. We knew a lot already, but we did not just rely upon our own knowledge. You know, we were quite, we were very good about ensuring that actually we could reference a lot of it anyway. Um, But also recognizing that one of the reasons we were writing the book was that a lot of the material was just not available. It, or, or not available in, in you know in easily digestible
2: form um, that, that we were hoping to achieve exactly thank you very much team and since you've if you've mentioned it what were those bits that were left out that you would have liked to have included
1: um, so I think I think there are a few bits and pieces um, you know we we. Uh, First off, I, I think, I mean, what, actually one of the early reviewers of our book um, commented on this, and, and, and they're absolutely right. You know, the, the We would have actually liked to have talked a little bit more about the creation of money. Um, that is a topic in and of its own right. There have actually been, I think there's at least one book written about it. Um, and actually, you know, talking about the relationship between Tim and I, that we actually had a, a good, strong argument about that um, in, in the very early phases and had to go away and do some research and make sure that we were... Well, in fact, I'll admit, in this case, it was Tim who was correct. Um, but but that, that sort of thing, actually, the creation of money is, is one of those things that the really, on the face of it, everybody thinks is self-evident, and it isn't. So I think, I think a little bit more on that. Um, we also, you know, from my perspective, and I'll, I'll, I'll let Tim talk a little bit about some of the sort of subject areas, uh, but, but for me, actually, in hindsight, I think I would have liked to have dug a little deeper into the inner workings of the core banking system. Um, because one of one of the things that's you know that's quite clear to me, and actually the, the Metro Bank experience highlighted it to me, is there's all sorts of queues and suspense accounts that your average core banking system has that not necessarily everybody is aware of, and they need to run really cleanly in in order to be to be an efficient and effective uh, banking service. Uh, I know Tim, you've got a couple of extra points that that um, you'll, you'll put. Yeah,
0: t- so so um, there's one topic that we mulled over was was. Um, financial management in banks and the technology supporting them Um, and we did you know we we actually while we were writing the book in the in the sort of the 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 two or three years after we'd signed a contract with wiley and and we were sort of working full you know full tilt and trying to write a book Uh, and part of that work was we were we were both heavily involved in delivering a, a finance system to a to a major international bank um And, you know, we picked up some knowledge about, um, you know, about how finance systems are architected and how banks, you know, do financial management. And we could probably have have written a whole chapter on it, if not. In fact, to be honest, I think there's, uh, again, it's one of those areas that gets deeply technical, not only from a technology perspective, but from a financial management perspective. Uh, And there's probably, you know, there's probably a book to be written on that, not necessarily by us. Um, But we just we just ran out of time. Um, to be honest, and also we'd hit we'd hit our word limit. Although although I, I think our publisher was was relatively flexible, but we, in the end we imposed a deadline by way, which we would deliver the, the the first complete draft of the book, and we were determined at this point. This was actually in 2020. We were determined to hit that deadline, um, and 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 we did. Um, and one of the things that had to go with any real depth around finance technology in, in in banks.
1: In fact, actually, Tim Tim and I have talked about this a number of times since. And you know, that, uh, our feeling is, if we had done justice to every area of banking to the same level of detail, you, you're probably not talking a single book there. You're you're talking two or three books or one huge book. So there had to be some some points at which we just said to say, actually, there's enough on there. We've given the reader enough to start, enough to dig into the detail, and enough to kind of start to pull on the pieces of string to, to, to know where to go next, but, but probably not covered it, you know, at item right, right the way down to the level of depth that, that would have been ideal.
2: Well, you've certainly called the book, well, since you've called the book the handbook of bank, of banking technology, you, you could have, you know, added volume one, volume two, and volume three, maybe, as a... To keep your your um, better halves happy in that in that sense, um, you know, a very very long endeavor. But um, um, we've been talking and uh, moving around a little bit on on, on the first uh, three chapters of the book, which is the introduction, the this this historical bit about about banking, and then what I uh, find to be one of the most um, um, important or certainly for me most interesting parts of of the book I'm, I'm not trying to make to minimize the the other part which is your uh attempt to tackle core banking and what core banking uh, is and and means um and and you will correct me if 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 I am wrong but uh, the way I I see things or or something that um I would have liked or or, 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 or uh, um, see as part of, of of the process is that we see banks, and, we, and we're talking about commercial banks. We're talking about retail banks, um, moving from the early introduction of of, of computers in the in the fifties and sixties, um, the the great success of the IBM three hundred and sixty, uh, the, the 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 adoption of of mini computers in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies and then the the challenges of of real um or, or what i mean real uh, is going to uh, of actually delivering real time online banking with atms and and debit cards in the in the 80s and and uh early early 90s and and we say you're you're agreeing with me and and that's as as you point out in the in the book the the challenges of atms and and debit cards which which are very close to my heart um as i've written on atms and i'm writing now on debit cards um, is because of this need to provide um available balances for on-the-spot transactions which had been dealt with in, in a number of, of ways as as the digitalization of, of banks was was progressing. Uh, this is a long introduction to say that I think that there is this move from this concept of back office of we have some islands, some 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 spaces that have been digitalized to this concept of core banking where we have an architecture and infrastructure uh, a, a, a basis where we are now storing and and thinking how you know what is it the, the back the technological backbone of the of the financial institution so you you provide a num a, a couple of, of very interesting diagrams to exemplify this that uh, because we cannot use in the um podcast um, uh, format, it will help uh, uh, people go and, and, and read the book and, and learn about them. But in your own words, what is core banking? And this is this is the, the whole of chapter of chapter three. And not only what is core banking, but why is it that it's important?
0: So, so uh, yeah, it's a it's a great question. Uh, and I think if you, you know, you ask different people, you get different answers what core banking is. Um, I think Lucia might have alluded to this already, but um, so um, we were f- probably from from a in terms of you know time of our careers and how technology was typically deployed, I'd say you know from from leaving university, going into technology and financial services, it was really at the peak period when when um, mainframes, were widely used. So, you know, people, I mean, all, all big banks would be using mainframes and typically IBM mainframes, not always, um, you know, there's, there, there have been other varieties, although, um, you know, the only variety you tend to see these days are IBM mainframes, but, but some banks will have other types, I'm sure, even now. And these were big centralized systems um, that could do an, a huge amount of processing very efficiently. Um, you know, so, They've been loaded with capabilities, including maintaining all the accounts that a bank has to maintain for its customers. You know, that's, and that for me, it's that maintenance of the accounts um, that is, that's what core banking is in my head. It's, it's, it's no more at, at, a, at one level than the digitization of what used to happen in big paper ledgers. Okay, that for me is fundamentally core banking. However, these big systems, uh, and 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 you, you know you can buy there's independent software vendors. So so people like Temenos who will sell you Temenos T24 as a core banking system. Well, that is that is in my mind, yes, it's got a core banking aspect to it because it maintains bank accounts. Okay but it's it's much more than a core banking system. It, it's more like a bank in a box, those sort of platforms that will do everything. You know, they'll, they'll provide you with, with an internet bank, um, they'll hook into um, uh, your contact center platform, may even provide that. They'll provide the, the platform, the teller uses inside a bank branch, okay? All these different touch points they'll support, okay? They, they'll also support processes like opening accounts, closing accounts, Um, tracking customers and your relationships with them and the contact you've had with them. So that that sort of CRM capability, okay, as well as managing the bank accounts. Well, those are sort of all singing, all dancing, bank in a box type approaches. But that is not in my mind what a core banking platform is. The core banking platform is that kernel that manages the bank accounts. And I'd say from a tech perspective, the modern movement is away from those big platforms that do everything what what i would now call monolithic platforms to actually to to having discrete services like you would have a core banking services service that maintains the bank accounts you might have a different service um, that does something like open an account okay and and then set it up in the ledger service Um, and that that sort of Having multiple services that all cooperate and and integrate together and and you know that that's a much more modern approach.
1: It's it's interesting actually because the you know, when you when you you look at the history of technology you see ideas come and go and 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 quite often you know they'll they'll return at a point in time. I mean if you go back to the origins of of banking systems to Tim's point you, you may well have a system in the middle which just held details of the products in the customer account, so your current account, uh, and it might apply interest rates you know, to, to it, you know, so there might be a, different, a, nightly, a nightly batch job that ran the interest rate calculations, and so on and so forth. And then off to one side, there might be a telephony system, or well, there might even be a, a, a core telephony system, and then something then that handled the agent pieces, and then off to another side, there's the internet banking system, which actually, and then over a period of time, you end up with these, these bank in a box, everything is brought together, uh, and now we're in a position where everything's being exploded back out again. It, it's subtly different because actually, in a microservice type, type architecture like many of these are, it, it's more granular than it used to be. So, to Tim's point, you might actually have a system that is entirely set up, or a microservice that is entirely set up just for the creation of an account, or just for the for the for the for the, for the uh, closure of an account. But but the, the concept is it's kind of interesting that you see these sort of changes in technology over time, an explosion out a consolidation, an explosion out. And actually, you know, when you look at the history of banking, um, you know, one of the things that Tim and I found quite interesting was, you know, the the changes in the number of banks, you know, they you know a little piece of legislation will change and you get a proliferation of banks and then a consolidation and a proliferation and a consolidation. And it's it's interesting to see some of these repetitive things. And and I think I was musing on this before before we spoke. You know, we we in the book we feature quite a bit on some of the history of certain technologies, and you might ask yourself, why is that valid? What, why as a reader do I want to know that thirty years ago we did it this way? And there's there's two reasons for that, I think. Um, one is um it, it actually helps because in some banks they've still got some of these systems. There are still rumours abounding in the in the bank in, in in the UK that that one of the big banks has a system that runs in pounds, shillings, and pence. I won't mention who it is, but there is that rumor knocking around. But there is, even if it's not true, there is truth in the substance of it, which is that many of the systems that ran many years ago still exist in part or in whole at the back of some of those banks. So it's useful to understand what they did and how they run. The second is this conversation that I've always had, I've often had as a technology consultant and still have today. You know, when when I I, start a new job, for example, The first thing you do, you you look at the the state of the technology that that, that is running. And the first question you ask is, how on God's earth did you get here? And and usually the reason that you got there is because a whole series of technology, and actually to your point earlier, business decisions that have forced compromises, that have forced situations in the bank that have led you to this fairly odd outcome. And, And that for me is... Is where i think the, the importance of talking about the technology the technological history of these systems it is useful because it does give you the context and as i kind of alluded to earlier if you're going to innovate you need to understand why we are where we are and, and, and what today looks like
0: yeah and no, i'd add to that lucy because i think one of the essential challenges in particularly in bigger well-established banks is that you have this plethora of investments in technology of different ages that persists because it's very difficult to replace um and so you you do you actually you need to have some appreciation of that because it can make it very difficult to introduce um change and and new systems and new features because you, you've got to go back to your your big mainframe system and make some changes there, and you've got limited people who actually fundamentally understand how it works now and things like that. So, so that's a understanding that I think is quite important because that's why change is hard. It's why projects can take a long time, particularly in big organisations, and it's one of the few advantages that that a, a neo bank or a startup bank possibly has over 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 the bigger the bigger banks who have all those economies of scale and so on. So you know a neobank can rapidly innovate. They're pretty much they can start from a blank sheet of paper and off they go. But it's it's also interesting to see because you know Lucien talked about Metro and that was a start you know a new bank more than ten years ago now. Um, well actually it, it probably looks pretty much like a legacy bank from a technology perspective because they've made lots of investments over the years. You know they start off relatively simple but they've added things on, they've acquired a couple of businesses that have brought some more technology. You know, they've had to deal with changes in, in the products and services that needs to deliver to customers and things like that. So, um, you know, it, it, it's it's very hard to really think strategically because you're always playing this, I've, I I need to move forward at pace. You know, time to market is typically of the essence um, speed to market and, and fast speed to market. So, um, and, and and technology keeps evolving. So it's very hard. It's very hard to 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 stay modern in practice.
2: Thank you. And as 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 you say, well, there is this this um, not tension, but you 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 have to deal with with the cost effectiveness of of delivering. These solutions in terms of time, in terms of how much you you want to invest in in changing things. If if it ain't broken, don't fix it. And then you know, but but things uh, move on. So the, the, let's um, let's clarify one one thing. Uh, that I mean, if we jump into the core banking, uh, which is which is a very uh, deep end of of the pool. But as as you illustrate, and as I think it is, is the 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 um, the way that the, some other people in the industry picture this, what you have is at least three tires of of the bank. So at the very bottom you you have your core banking. Then in the middle you have some some sort of communication or or liaison uh, liaison type of applications, and then at the at the very top you 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 would have what the customers actually see your your front end Uh, and that's where you 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 started your your discussion today you know you you, very few people think beyond what you know is is this interaction with the you know the the most uh, um um i wouldn't say superficial but it's just just one layer of the interaction with the bank and what is happening towards towards the the end of it, but you've have also mentioned this these two extremes, um, which is in in you've illustrated what what a challenger bank uh, has to go through and how they they get into this this um, trend of you know adding and putting other bits together. So my question, or what I would like to explore with you is. Um, you know these two extremes of creating an, a, a new bank and having this idea that because you're starting afresh you're gonna develop for a lack of a better word, a competitive advantage because you're you're using the latest technology. And on the other hand, you have the challenge of having to integrate two large banks tom- sometimes across borders and and these are quite different challenges and which which I think you you, you both have um, dealt with. So um, to what extent, going to the first model, to what extent is this realistic that, you know, you can start up a, a bank from scratch and this is going to cre- give you uh, a, a huge advantage?
0: So, okay, so, so I think from the perspective that you can develop Services that are are unique, and your ability to do so—it's never been easier, and it's never been easier because that you know there are big cloud providers, so you don't have to invest a lot of capital in in tin and infrastructure. You know, you can you can minimize your upfront expenditure. There's a lot of technology that's readily available as open source. You know, that that provide the basic building blocks. Um, you can, you can really move at pace, I think. Um, uh, so that's, that's a, in my mind, it's a definite advantage. Uh, I, I, you know, and I think over the last few years with the challenger banks, we, we've, see, we've definitely seen some of that. Um, but there's a whole other side. And this touches on one of the themes that's in the book really, which is that um, the big banks have massive economies of scale that it's it, it's incredibly difficult for a new bank to overcome and and they also have certain positions in in certain markets that, that the big the big banks have certain positions in certain markets that also make things difficult like if they're controlling the payment schemes or access to the payment schemes you know in effect you're gonna to have to pay them to do what everyone wants to do with a bank which is transfer money basically and, and make payments um so uh and you know, and there's been various explorations of this in in markets, uh, and and for example, in the UK, the I, I think it was the FCA um, did a study on this a few years ago. Now we we reference it in the book uh, about whether um, whether small banks can can over new banks can overcome the sort of economies of scale that the bigger guys have, um, and 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 it, it would it didn't I would say it didn't reach a completely firm conclusion, but it, it it felt there was there was at least some opportunity as long as the small banks grew rapidly um grew their customer base rapidly so that they they started getting economies of scale themselves as well um having said that i think I think my view is is that the ultimate destination. Of these startup banks is to be acquired by bigger banks and absorbed into them, and that that actually that is one another thing we make in the book that the the history of banking over the last two or three centuries is one of consolidation. In in, in virtually every market that we looked at, um, banks have consolidated. You know, you can look at say Nordea in the Nordics. You can look at Barclays in the UK, J.P. Morgan chase in, in the US and they are the product of ever increasing amounts of consolidation uh I remember I once visited Nordea and they had a you know I was I was sitting before I was uh, sort of in in reception and they had this book on the table in this book there was this family tree of Nordea um and it showed all these banks coming together over two centuries basically and and uh, yeah so I just feel like we were I, I was I was particularly keen to sort of validate that view of the world. Um, having said that, it was, I'd also say over the last 10 years, as, as, as Lucy alluded to earlier, it's been quite exciting because these challenger banks have in effect been working against that secular long-term trend of consolidation. That's what it feels like. It's been a really exciting period where actually we've seen new banks set up for the first time in a long time. MetroBank, I think, claimed it was the first high street bank for was it a hundred years or something i can't remember you know and um so that i I think that's been very exciting um and but as i said i think i think my my personal view is that ultimately those will be acquired Uh, and you know maybe one or two exceptions but it's hard to think of any other destination
1: i think to come back to your to your point but uh, there are, I think there are, and, and Tim touched on this, there are opportunities for, for new entrants to mm-hmm. innovate. Um, and certainly in certain niches, they've been very successful. You know, some of the new entrants in South America have, have gained scale quite significantly and have innovated and, and brought out new products and services. The, the, the constraints around that innovation is, and I, and I think we've kind of alluded to this already, is where you touch the existing infrastructure. So you know, to Tim's point, you know, the payments networks, you know, you have to interface to the payments networks, and and I think for me, there's some interesting stuff going on. There are people genuinely attempting to innovate in the payments world. You know, you've got people like Ripple and stuff who are attempting to generate new payments networks and new processes for for, for pushing uh, payments around the world, uh, and they may offer further innovation. Uh, but but for me, a lot of the innovation that's occurring at the moment is is that innovation which is which is within the bounds of the business itself. You know. Things like the early phases of EIDV, uh, Monzo's little heartbeat line, or you know, which showed you where you were in your in your month and, and how much money you had in your account. I think that's gone now, actually. But but those sorts of things, you know, within the, within the control of that business. Yeah, absolutely. But but the but big things will constrain you.
0: Yeah, one one of the questions we asked ourselves was, what new products have banks come up with, and to be honest, we struggled to think of any since. Well, I, I do. I mean, is the debit card a product? I don't, probably not. It's a means of accessing your account and making payments. I'm not sure it's a, a product, but banking products, which I think we would class as things like, you know, types of accounts. So a mortgage will be a product, a current account's a product, a loan's a product, a savings account's a product. Um, well, they've pretty much been around for decades, if not centuries and we didn't we 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 really tried to identify what well who's come up with a new type of banking product. All the innovation I'd say, all the you know what what has technology done over the fifty or sixty years um uh it's been available, it's it's enabled greater economies of scale. Um, So, you know, things can be processed in an automated way rather than having to process stuff in a bank branch. You could process it centrally, for example. Um, uh, A sort of increase in speed. Um, So the debit card that we talked about earlier, being an example, now I can, you know, now as a bank, I have to track my balances of the accounts during the day, not just overnight, because I've got people in effect. Making payments out of their account at all times of night and day, um, and then I think it's the methods of access. So how do customers access and interact with the banking system, with their banks, with payment systems, and so on? That's that's and that's where I think a lot of the innovation around payments, in particular, has been happening. Um, you know, with with some exceptions, that you know there are potentially people who are trying to break out of the established payment net networks. But again, there's, there's still an economies of scale barrier there because you look at, say, the global card payment schemes and building those networks has taken decades. And it's immensely difficult
2: to um, not use them, basically. And um, for me, it's, it's a can, can of worms that I've never been able to solve. What is the difference between a banking product and a banking service? In the retail space, and and people talked about talk about them interchangeably, and and although I've, um, yeah, I mean, you 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 have a clear idea of what you mean by a product, and and that's 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 fair. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody will accept it I'm I'm not trying to criticize. I'm just saying that there is no consensus of what is the difference between a banking product and a banking service. Having said that, there is and And uh, there is one of our former, one of the other podcasts that we've done on with uh, Jim Besson on pointing into the rise in variety to use the technical term the great number of economies of scope that IT has enabled large organizations and in particular uh, financial services. So one of the, the things that uh, a startup uh, bank a challenger bank would have um which by the way um again coming back to some of the the things that you said the 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 fintechs or the challenger bank around fintech starting perhaps with with metrobank have been much more successful than the attempts of using technology to challenge banks in the in the dot-com era as uh, and this is where I was going with my former questions that probably they were just focusing on the this last bit of interaction, this last layer of of interaction with the customer, rather than thinking through, um, you know, all of the what would involve um, going going back. Whereas the, of course, technology has moved. Um, there was a, a point of, of 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 financial market development that also moved with with all of this excess cash that made the the, f- the fintechs and the challenger banks easier to to implement because you had you know you had different technology and you had more you know uh, a bigger pool of funds available to to do it uh, uh, besides the novelty and the learning that had taken place around uh, the dot com and and two thousand and eight but but that's that's uh, that's um, um besides the point what I wanted to come back is this this issue of variety and 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 it permeates the book as as you're going through the different layers and and comes back to my earlier question of you know the challenges of having to integrate a large bank that has all of this great variety particularly across borders when you're going to have to face with uh different regulatory compliance and if if i want to put my 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 my, my finger on the on the wound on the wound is is the apparent relative success of banks of, of the spanish banks that use this core banking called uh, altamira or, or rooted in this core banking product called altamira from Accenture, and then the apparent uh, abject failure or not not abject failure but the apparent the actual withdrawal of of other promising banks or banks that were promising to be global in the retail space such as HSBC and certainly Citibank. Citibank has, has all sold its large operations in, in, in uh, the subcontinent, in, in India and Pakistan, that were a third of the bank. It's in the process of selling its operations in Mexico, which was also a big part of the profitability of the bank. It's basically said, you know, I, I cannot handle or I am not in, in or don't have the skills to deliver retail banking, and the same thing has happened with, with Goldman Sachs, which, which was very much an investment bank, trying to develop, and you know having a large financial muscle, having uh, uh, um, knowledge, some 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 knowledge of of IT skills. Uh, no, no, I, I don't want to minimize. Sorry, that didn't sound very nice. But basically, um, what I meant is also at, at at a different point in in technology. Yes, te- technological development. They they could have, you know, or presumably, you know, like a startup bank would have had it easier than having to build upon legacy. And yet Goldman has withdrawn from the, from the retail space, right? So, you know, what is it from your perspective that are the challenges of having to integrate this large, diversified banks and particularly with the added cherry on the top of doing it across borders
0: okay so so yeah it's a it's a big question isn't it um so let's touch upon the spanish banks because i've often often sort of looked at them and felt they had an advantage in in a couple of ways so so i think i I suspect I don't I don't really know but I suspect there was a sort of timing advantage for the Spanish banks you know after the end of the Franco era uh joining the EU in the 80s and things like that um I, I think what happened there was a wave of investment in the sort of their core banking platform. so so but uh, you mentioned Altamira from Accenture which I think came out, out of Madrid um also, this partner from Santander, which also came out of Madrid. Um, it felt like in Madrid, there must have been an awful lot of people working on um, mainframe-based systems. And bbba has got, I can't remember the name of the system they have, but but you know, there's a, it's a similar concept. So,
2: it's... Um, know, sorry. Were... Sorry, Tim. Yes, just to correct. Actually, Actemira was developed from what I've learned in Buffalo, and then it was exported it was for a small banking in in Buffalo, and then exported to to Spain as they were dealing with these issues in the in the 1980s. And the the the, the basic core for both um, what ended up being sent, well, what was sent in there, and for um, BBVA was Altamira. Then then they changed it a little bit, and and uh, but but yeah. Anyway.
0: that yeah, it's interesting. I didn't I didn't know that. For sure, Bernardo. It was always I was always quite surprising because also IBM had a mainframe banking product that would that had been developed in Madrid. Ended up Terminus ended up buying it off them actually. Um, so it just felt like Madrid seemed like to be the centre of the universe for 1980s mainframe-based banking platforms. It was it was quite interesting at a level. Um, but okay, so, so so from a timing perspective you know those those platforms in those banks built in the 80s not the 1960s which is what you saw in the UK with with people like Barclays building their banking platforms uh, and so on um so there's that point i think as well um and santander was really the poster child for this they 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 bought other banks in other countries you know for example they acquired abbey in the uk amongst others um uh, but what they did, they had a firm belief that they had to consult, they had to consolidate the technology. They would get on with executing the technology consolidation. Now, if you ever, having worked, you know, extensively in the sort of core banking consulting space, developing a business case for that sort of technology consolidation is actually very difficult, very hard. They, it tends to be very expensive to do. And actually, it's very difficult to find great business sort of revenue benefits from those sort of things because you, you're selling the same product, regardless of whether they're on one or two platforms. OK, doesn't really make any difference what platform they're on. Um, so, but they, they have a fundamental, I'm pretty sure Santander has a fundamental belief that they should consolidate the technology to, to rip out the costs, OK, and get maximal economies of scale. And they just believe it and they get on it and they do it. And they have, they've invested in the execution capability to do it, which is another, another major point. Um, Cause core banking integration replacement is risky. It's career limiting typically and risky. So um, I mean, all credit to Santander when they were doing this. Um, I, I, ha, having said that, it, it feels to me like the pendulum has swung to some extent because there's a, you know, we've seen a, a sort of, a balkanization of, you know, the, it felt like the world was globalizing 10 years ago, but now, you know, the, the pendulum swung and there's much more balkanization. Brexit would be an example of that, you know, that the UK pulling out of the, the whole EU um, structure. Um, And also I think regulators have become much more wary and, and, you know, you get countries like say Saudi Arabia, China. Um, that insist upon processing being done in country. Russia would, would be another example. You know, so so I, I think we sort of saw the ending of that globalization across the retail banking sector. And then I'd make one other comment, and, and this is perhaps more in, you know, why is Goldman retrenching and, and after having investment in retail banking? I think those guys, the investment banks, saw that actually they could use retail banking as a way of raising cheap money um, and then you know either lending it out or using an investment bank um but i'm not sure they i'm not sure they have the same need for that money and i'm not sure it's as cheap to raise actually to retail banking as they perhaps thought it was and that's that's one of the reasons for you know for retrenching the and and then also, if you're going to raise the funds through deposit taking, and this is the story of, of, of you know some of the startup banks, that's a way to lose money because you have to pay interest. Um, you, you you make money. It's the traditional banking model that everyone you know in banking knows, which is you make money on the margin between what you lend the money out at and what you take to, you pay on interest and deposits. That's 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 sort of the basic banking model. Um, so um really i think the successful retail banks are those that fundamentally understand they have to get into lending you know that's where they make the money and if you don't if you don't really go for the lending then you're not going to make any money you're not going to survive
1: oh, i would I would add I mean you, you, you talked a lot about sort of the, sort of the technology and the and the financial aspects of, of these businesses i've been listening a bit to to Scott Galloway recently and, and he talks about the sort of a natural sort of human physics which makes enormous businesses very difficult to run and, and often inevitably it means that over a period of time they're kind of collapsing on themselves uh, and I think to an extent that's what we 've seen in in, in banking and, and part of the issue i mean you, I think it's easy to kind of forget, if you go back to 2008, 2010, through to sort of 2015, the number of regulatory compliance fraud failures that some of these big banks saw on a global basis, for me, underscores how hard it is to get a consistent set of standards and control right the way across the globe when you're operating in, you know, 50, 60, 80, 100 countries. Uh, And I think there's a realisation and, 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 you know, the fines have kept rolling. There's still fines going out at the moment, you know, for, for banks in the U.S. in particular. Uh, there's been a couple of announcements in the last few weeks about, about fines. And, and you look at it and you think it's, it's just not sustainable. And at some point, these businesses are going to look at it and go, it's just too risky for us to attempt to operate at this scale. And, and I mean, I, I, and Tim and I both spent time at a, at a big global bank um, and, and I was tasked there with, with trying to cut costs on a global level. And the single biggest challenge that I had is you you go out and you talk to to, country leaders and and you say, okay, we've got to take some costs out. And they say, I I get it, I get it, but, but," you know, and and we absolutely have to, but but not in my country, surely. Uh, And and you get these little fiefdoms and they're very difficult to to manage when when you're on the other side of the planet.
0: Yeah, and I'd I'd add something to that as well, other The other syndrome you get is, yeah, we've got to take costs out, okay, and it's always the IT that's seen as a target we reduce our technology costs yeah that's the obvious thing to do but of course the the real cost reduction comes from rationalizing the products and services you're offering to the market you know reducing the complexity of that so you can then reduce what you're doing in the technology estate as a result and, and reduce the cost that way but of course that's a that's a much harder thing to do um, yeah. So, uh, so, Bernardo, your, your original question, we sort, of, we sort of talked about a lot of things, but your original question was that sort of banking integration, integration of systems and so on. Um, I think fundamentally, those organizations that can do it well, and I've already held up Santander, can, can get greater economies of scale and, and therefore, you know, improve um, their profitability. That, that fundamental belief, but it, it's very difficult. Um, it's um, for me. There's a, an essential point about technology, and it doesn't just apply to banking. But when we, when when you look at what goes into, um, um, say, a core banking system, but actually you look at all the layers that are involved from from the processor, you know, in, inside the, the the servers and and the, the the hard drives that are probably still used for storage, all the way up through the layers of the operating system, different software et Etc. et cetera, I think these, are, these platforms in banking and other industries are probably the most complex things that man has built. And understanding that and dealing with that complexity is, feels to me to be the essential challenge of technology. Yeah. yeah. Okay? Uh, and, 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 it's not, and it doesn't get easier either. It just gets harder because oh. we build more and more on top of this stuff.
1: And that was essentially the bit that I was going to add in, in, in that when we talk about the new entrants, when we talk about the innovators, I think fundamentally for me, the trick is not to forget that simplicity is king. Uh, and if you can keep it simple, if you can keep, keep it relatively consolidated and not see this proliferation of systems and services and capabilities and all the rest of that stuff it will serve you well later on. If you if you can get through that initial growth phase, you can get some sort of scale, you can make the business profitable. If you can keep your IT estate relatively simple, consistent, standards-based, I think you're in a much better position to continue to grow uh, than if you allow it to, to proliferate and homogenize.
2: Thank you. Uh, and, and you've probably touched on something that I I, 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 I firmly believe, that it's, it's not only the technology, but it's how the technology supports the strategy, where you want to go with the with the bank. And this is my 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 next question into in something that um, Lucian just mentioned, which is how you deal with the internal politics, how you deal with you, you know you said how you deal with fiefdoms, and and uh, apparently uh, again in the case of Spanish banks they they were uh, ruthless you know, this is the way that we're going to do things, you're, you know, you're in or you're out. And, and no hesitation to to cut, you know, a very senior people if they were not buying into this, this ticket, which is something that uh, I, I was probably, I don't know if I've missed it in the book, which is how you do these executions. And, and here I'm thinking about uh, waterfall, we've, versus the the, the now uh, topical agile uh way of of doing things and for people who are not familiar with waterfall is this old yeah now old style do, way of doing projects where where you you start and 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 you develop and it takes 2 or 3 years to to deliver and and this agile approach which is supposed to draw on different parts of the of the organization very as, as using your terminology, customer centric. What is it that we want to deliver in a very short period of of time, while trying to avoid these, you know, um, white elephants and and and, and large offsets in in and, and large investments that don't come out with yeah. with anything.
0: But Bernardo, for me, there's. Um, I mean, it, so so first of all, I'd say the whole topic of how you deliver change or technology-enabled change. It, I mean, it's uh, you could spend a career on nothing else. And it's it's not only a banking problem it, in all major industries. I think I think you have this challenge. Um, banking, though, let, let, there is something about this search for economies of scale in banking, you know, so both by consolidating banks, but also, you know, um, putting our processing into big centralised processing platforms and things like that, that, that that's happened. Um, it, it also, there's this trade-off of economies of scale with agility, the ability to change at pace, um, and what, you've, what we've seen um, with particularly big tech, who I think have really been the driving force on this, with big with big tech, we've seen bigger scale platforms than we've ever seen before. You know, so people like Facebook and Twitter. Can you imagine? You know, they might have a billion users uh, or more in the case of Facebook. I think, okay, and 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 they're doing vast amounts of computing across what in effect are distributed systems because there isn't. You couldn't put this all on one big centralized system. It, it it's too big scale. They've sort of understood how to deal with massive scale from a technology perspective while um, preserving a decent level of agility. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's that that I think in the banking industry has really not tackled at all. Uh, I'd struggle to think of um, any bank that's really having that's really dealt with it. I, th- I think a lot of what you see in the banking sector are big centralized systems that by their very nature, because they're centralized, monolithic, they are, change is very difficult to do rapidly. You go through long change cycles, lots of testing before you can introduce a new change into the live system. Um, and it's very difficult to break out away from that. Once you've got it, you've sort of sunk cost. We, we
1: we touched to, to an extent on this in the book in that we talk about sort of different sort of uh, types of systems and how you might approach, uh, how you might approach the, the change to them. And, and to Tim's point, I think when you've got a large consolidated core system at the back end, which is critical to your day-to-day running, you, you can't afford to be running iterative cycles of change on it because the amount of testing that you have to carry out in order to be confident that you're not going to... You know, stop every customer in the UK from being able to make a deposit for the next 24 hours, you know, you have there's a huge amount of change, uh, sorry, t- testing associated with that change. So, you know, actually the way that I kind of, I, I was looking at it when I was working in, 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 in that sort of space was very much, you know, you, you actually probably want to adapt to change model depending upon the, the technology you're using and, and how impactful any change might be. You know, when, when you're working on UI, UX type changes within the app, and you're moving a button around or something like that. You probably can. You can probably, you know, you can do your A/B testing or whatever it is. You can push out different versions and, and see how they're used. And and you could do that, you know, regularly. I won't say daily or weekly, but you could do it. You could do it regularly, as regularly as, you, as, you, as your team can. come up with You can't do that on,
2: on a on a core system which is critical to your business. It's just too risky. Right. Thank you very much, Lucian. Well, I think that we've, you know, in a very broad way, bring bring out the, all, some of the themes that you do much better work at looking at individually throughout the book in terms of compliance, in terms of channels, in terms of, 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 of regulation. And, and um, through this conversation, uh, we haven't been able to go into all of the detail that you go in, in the book, but try to portray how they, they come together. Is there something else that you think that we, that we should mention or that we have left out in this conversation?
1: So I think, I think from my perspective, the one thing which we touch on in the book, but actually I, I think there's plenty more room for, is is the impact of regulation and the, the need. Uh, uh, I believe to kind of to, to read carefully into that regulation. Um, you know, one of the the things that struck me when I was when I moved from sort of the, the bigger banks in, into the smaller banks is, is the sort of agility of mindset of the compliance teams. Um, that there are, and this is, I mean, this is fundamentally one of the complaints I think one of the big banks have with a lot of the fintechs, is that actually, as it turns out, there are multiple ways in addressing regulation. In fact, the UK regulator is a really interesting case in point because, you know, when I actually did a piece of work with them and I asked one of the team, you know, why is it that the UK regulator doesn't prescribe solutions in the same way that the US regulator does? And he said, look, you know, I'm not talking on behalf of the regulator here, but my view is that by not being prescriptive, we give people the opportunity to innovate. And we also give them the opportunity to prove that they understand what we're asking for in the solutions they come back with. But that does give you the opportunity to interpret the regulation, how you deal with that regulation differently, depending upon your circumstances. Uh, And, you know, certainly within the UK, we've seen quite a bit of that. People implementing solutions Which are not the same as the bank solutions they're equally equally as compliant but they've done it differently and that gives them you know the banks regard it as regulatory arbitrage i don't really think it is regulatory arbitrage because they're answering the question they're just doing it in a more neat more cost-effective way Um, now there are obviously there are obviously i mean if you look at the recent failure of of, uh, uh, the cryptocurrency um, business, um, FTX, uh, re- recently. You have to have controls in place. You can't get away from that if you're going to run a business effectively. But there are different ways of addressing it. And actually, I think you know the regulatory section in the book touches a little on that. But there are actually quite, probably quite a bit more that we could have talked about in terms of in terms of how you work with it. And certainly, my experience is when working with people who are prepared to go back to the regulation reread it and challenge their own thinking, quite often you do find quite innovative ways of addressing some of those solutions that don't require the massive belt and braces type answers that some of the big banks have implemented.
0: Right. Bernardo, from my my perspective, what what else, you know, what else could we we have covered, um, you know, either on this call or or perhaps in the book? Um, There's... (laughs) The last chapter is is, is, it gives some thoughts about the future of banking and banking technology. Um, That's always the hardest um, chapter to write, I think. (laughs) Not that I've written many books, Um, but you know, it's and I suspect if anything's going to date most more quickly, the most quickly, it's going to be that chapter. Um, I think it would be nice to have the luxury of more time and probably more conversations to think you know to come up with a a a sort of stronger view of how this how things develop from here forward um but you know it's it's in the end we had to get the book out and uh you know time is finite unfortunately um but i i you know I, i i welcome Further conversations about actually how things are going to develop and and, and some form to do that within as well um, would be would, would be great.
2: Thank you very much, Tim. So, is this your next project, or is there going to be a next uh, project together, or or uh, what could you, could we um, expect from 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 you?
1: I think. I mean. So speaking for myself, I mean, there's there's possibly two things to do. I mean, you, you know, you touched. Uh, you asked a uh, what I thought was a really interesting question about what we would have covered more or better of, and I think I think there is an opportunity potentially to to go back and, and rewrite certain sections, add more detail, and expand on various points, and um, uh, you know, and, and possibly produce a second edition. The, the other thing. Um, you know, personally, that I'm kind of contemplating is I'm I'm, I'm currently working within the mortgage industry, as you, you pointed out at the start, and um, the mortgage industry is one of those industries that uh, actually at the point at which we were seeing the massive sort of change and, and, and almost revolution in, in customer service in retail banking and, and apps and what have you brought about by Mons and Starling and stuff early earlier on, you know, about a decade ago. We, we haven't seen the same level of innovation in mortgage lending um, it's coming um and i'm hopefully you know I'm in exactly the right place to, to to be involved at the heart of that so you know my, my my feeling is that in another few years' time there might be an opportunity to write a book about about what's happened within the mortgage lending industry, certainly from a uk perspective um although my suspicion is actually from some of the conversations i've had with peers around the world. The, the same level of innovation and the same direction of innovation is occurring globally much as it's done with, with, with the retail banking side
0: i think i think from my perspective um, as we we talked a little bit about earlier the the essential challenge about delivering technology enabled change um and, and as i said it's, it's this is not only a, a banking problem this is you see it in all major organizations i think um that's a Again, that's an area I think we were, we had thoughts about, well, more than thoughts, we talked about including in the book. Uh, and there's there's a bit on technology, well, there's a chapter on technology organisation and it touched upon how, how you deliver change and things like that. But uh, again, it's, it's a very big topic um, and one that I think typically relies upon the expertise of individuals. If you have a good team who know how to deliver transformation, you'd probably get better outcomes. Um, it, it feels like there's a sort of codification and a realization of what works well that, that, you know, that could be written down. It'd be great to to feel that, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd helped contribute to that.
2: Well, um, Tim and Lucien, thank you very, very much for your time and having these conversations with us at the uh, NewBooks Network. Um, for those who have uh, listened to us, if you're a subscriber, do rank us or give us a, a thumbs up. That helps us a lot. If this is the first time that you come across us, uh, then do subscribe to our podcast and uh, our Twitter feed. Uh, again, Lucien, Tim, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, thank you. Yeah.